And what better way to start Tuesday home time than Mr Kevin Healy? A week, Jane, listener, when, thank goodness, we're independent as big supremo scuttled them more son told evil China, True Blue was he is independent. Independent of people like US of the UN, of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, for instance, of the US of. Therefore, a pure coincidence that a day after Donald attacked the World Health Organization, True Blue Aussie called for an inquiry into the World Health Organization. And as Donald blames evil China for making him react slowly to the virus he reacted quickly to, True Blue Aussie just happens to call for an inquiry into evil China. So this week, when Scuttle them told evil China, True Blue Aussie would not be dictated to, strong, independent, not dictated to, Donald would be proud of him. Best not dictated to ever, ever. Those who, like Donald and Scuttle them, understand the delicate flower that is the economy know its health must now take precedence over the health of those who provide the economy's profits. Because unlike the economy, people are expendable, and to a person, these wise people know the recipe for putting the economy we know and love back together again? Tax reform, industrial relations reform, deregulation, fast-track infrastructure. For one thing, caring employers have learned from this disruption to business as usual is the extent lazy, avaricious workers and evil unions have been ripping them off. Rip-offs a recovering patient cannot afford, can't relapse into crippling work practices like wages and conditions. Another commendable difference between caring employers and lazy avaricious workers is that every word, every action, every suggestion for reform from caring employers is for the common good of all of us. Selfless, selfless, selfless. While we know for workers and unions it's the very opposite. Self, self, self. And one of the most selfless emerging this week is Michael Hintz, real name, a, quote, London-based billionaire hedge fund manager managing $30 billion and who has been a major donor to conservative governments. Therefore, a truly great man, so great, her most gracious majesty, like Sir Richard, it's my grandson we mentioned last week, knighted for services to making heaps and heaps and heaps of money. Sir Michael proffered some sensible advice to our government this week. Well, good liberty, freedom and democracy governments everywhere and, and displayed the broad social concern these people bring, concern only for the common good. Governments must urgently reopen their economies, he advised. We need to open up in a way that allows society to continue to function. Lockdown, which has resulted in a halt to economic activity, is not sustainable. It is damaging to society, to people's aspirations, and to the economy. See, it's not sustainable to protect people's health without balancing that with the health of the economy, because society must continue to function. And I'm sure we all understand Sir Michael's idea of society functioning. Do we hear this sort of egalitarian common sense from the evil unions? No, we don't. If you missed this item, bad, bad news, listener, sorry to hear to bear bad, uh, sad tidings, arguably the most devastating victim of cancelled events due to the, the virus, they've cancelled the Logies, the opportunity for readers of some deeply philosophical television magazine full of in-depth information to cast their votes for their favourites. 
there goes our cultural fix for the year. Maybe, with a bit of luck, they'll realise they didn't miss them and thus, no, no, just wishful thinking, I'm afraid. Suddenly, coronavirus has found a roof over the heads of homeless people when we were told for eons it was impossible. Governments have found accommodation, so homeless people should be hoping COVID-19 drags on and on, because presumably, when it's declared over, the governments will discover providing a roof for their homeless co-citizens is again impossible, and they'll be thrown back onto the streets and parks and benches and gutters. Thus, a moment of hope on a telly news the other night reporting on the way the New South Wales government has housed homeless co-citizens, with the Minister for Homelessness asked what would happen to these people post-coronavirus responding, we want to build. That's the moment of hope, at last enlightenment. We want to build public housing for all who need it. What a moment. We want to build, he said actually, safe and secure lives for people. No mention of a roof over the heads of those who need one, but in government nebulous speak, a safe and secure way of doing absolutely nothing. But for that brief moment, forgive the tautology brief moment, I really thought his next words would be public housing. Not that they ever use that phrase anymore. It's all social housing, which isn't nearly as social as public housing. The connection being much of the housing run by the private social housing sector is public housing handed to them or 100% ultra-expensive private housing on public housing land handed to those so concerned about housing the destitute big developers. Uh, yes, we asked our State Minister for destroying public housing, Richard Wynne, for the private sector. Uh, why are you destroying public housing? I contest your assumption. Our record shows this government is 100% committed to social housing and the private sector. We were all moved in the week leading up to Train Killer Celebration, Best We Forget Day, as we commented last week of those delightful and moving photos day after day of dear little children in oversized slouch hats and bearing rows of medals and telling us how important it is to celebrate train killing which preserves and represents the values, true Blue Aussie values, and gives us the freedoms we enjoy to go overseas and kill other people and double-spread guides on how to celebrate the great day under the restrictions of lockdown. So apparently... This week, they ran out of kids or realised it was challenging lockdown to drag kids out and pose them in front of some monument to train killing because I expected naturally we'd see day after day pickies of dear little children wearing trade union badges, waving union flags, maybe paying tribute to relatives killed and injured at work, honouring working class heroes in the lead up to May Day with double spreads telling us how to celebrate the International Workers' Day under the restrictions of lockdown. But no, May Day came and went without even a mention. The same as last year, and the year before, and the year... Well, to be fair, they had the excitement of 250 years since the genesis of the His Most Gracious Majesty invasion of Terra Nullius, but... This week we can expect mass coverage, dear little children wearing anti-war badges, peace symbols, moratorium badges, perhaps even flowers in their hair, and lots of warriors for peace talking about the bravery of those prepared to fight against train killing, of the bravery of 20-year-olds prepared to go to jail and or live a clandestine underground existence 
rather than trained kill and be trained killed in an illegal invasion leading up to Friday as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the first Vietnam moratorium, which played so seminal a role in True Blue Aussie's history. We're taking odds here at 3CR on whether it too will even get a mention, particularly in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Media. The same didn't get a mention as the centenaries of the World War I referenda which opposed conscription. Well, they were too busy every day celebrating the centenary of some train-killing slaughter or other which honed our true blue Aussie values and delivered us the freedoms we enjoy. Like the freedom for Lord Rupert et al, not to mention May Day or anti-war referenda or anti-war marches leaving us to ponder how unfree we would all be today if we hadn't invaded that wrong beach and been slaughtered. We'd be under the jackboot of Turkish dictator Heard Them Up Again, a revived Ottoman Empire. There had been a major 50th anniversary event planned for this week, but hopefully we will be able to commemorate when we are able to commemorate. Meanwhile, we'll have to live with the media mass coverage. On which, how dare that Dr. Deputy Chief Health Officer, no less, spoil the jingoistic commemoration of the 250th anniversary of the genesis of the, Hermes, of the His Most Gracious Majesty invasion of Terra Nullius. Worse, with a name Van Diemen, Annalise Van Diemen, who became the demon as the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin was forced to make her perfidious comments the most important news of the day. With the brilliant pun inflated across P1, Cook, line, a strike, a stinker. <laughs> That's so clever, isn't it? How dare, as we celebrate the great Captain Cook, she spurts, sudden arrival of an invader from another land, decimating populations, creating terror, forces the population to make enormous sacrifices and completely change how they live in order to survive leading to a double-page spread, attack, 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 even dredging up a couple of Terra Nullius people to say she had no right to say what she said, insulting her most, or his most gracious majesty and Captain Cook. Finally, therefore, the one thing Lord Rupert didn't explain was which bit of what she said isn't true. Good afternoon. And thanks to Mr Kevin Healy. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Today, a focus on Brazil, Latin America's largest economy, a country where the coronavirus has overwhelmed hospitals, morgues and cemeteries as the nation's virus total comes closer to becoming the world's pandemic hotspots. A country where the arrival of far-right J.R. Bolsonaro as the president in late 2018 signalled great changes, and as his term has progressed, few are positive. Some are seen as disastrous, especially for the Amazon basin. I'm speaking now with author and activist Fred Fuentes, Fred, before we talk about the impact of the virus on the people in the economy of Brazil, can I take you back to April 2018, six months before the presidential elections? The jailing for many years after being found guilty for money laundering and other corruption charges of Lula. Polls have showed him 
leading the presidential race, but the conviction removed him from a clear run. Was it as clear-cut as that? Oh, well, certainly the polls put him in, in first position and indicated him to be the favourite. Whether he would have, without a doubt, had won the elections, you know, obviously that could have changed. But at, at the time of his jailing and his prescription from being able to run, uh, he was at, at that point the, the cleared leader. Uh, so he would have, without a doubt, had won the first round. And in the Brazilian elections, they would have almost certainly then gone to a second round because uh, from memory, the polls didn't have him at over 50%, but they had him very close to that. So the indications was he probably also would have won the, the second round and been elected president. Should he have gone to jail when you think about the corruption, the widespread corruption that there has been and still is in Brazil? Oh, it's been found very clearly that the whole case against Lula was trumped up. You know, what, what we had was a, a highly politicised case. Everything from, for instance, the fact that the judge who presided over his case when after Bolsonaro was elected president then became the Minister of Justice in Bolsonaro's cabinet through to the fact that there were several times where it became very clear that there was little to no evidence to be able to justify the conviction. And even after the initial conviction, when Lula appealed that conviction, he should have, because at that point of the electoral, uh, sorry, of the of the legal sort of battle, uh, the appeal had been open, he should have been allowed to stand as a candidate. But they still prescribed his his candidature, uh, and in the end, he's you know been absolved. He's he's now out of jail. Uh, you know, all, all of this indicates, together with a bunch of you know declassified documents that have shown the kind of uh, collaboration that happened between Judge Sergio Moro and the prosecutors, all in basically the, the judge suggesting to the prosecutors how to raise certain things in court in order to try to make Lula look guilty. All of these things make it very clear that it was a it was a, a politicised case uh, against Lula, and it should should be recalled that it wasn't just a use of, as they refer to it in Brazil, of, of lawfare, of using the legal system to basically attack a political opponent that wasn't only directed against Lula, but a very similar thing was used against Dilma Rousseff, who uh, was the Workers' Party president up until uh, 2016, 2017, when unconstitutionally, uh, under the guise of having some, some supposed... Uh, fiddling of the numbers in, in the budget. The Congress voted to impeach Dilma uh, and bring in a new president. So the, the whole elections not only occurs with Lula, the favourite candidate in jail, but also with the country being presided by an illegitimate president with no electoral mandate who was in ruling at that time, that had come to power at that time by an unconstitutional coup. This was the whole background to the kind of, as I said, lawfare that was being used to stop the Workers' Party from uh, being able to, to win what would have, at that stage, have been a, a fifth election uh, in a row, at least, for the, for the presidency. What did the people of Brazil know about Bolsonaro as he was standing for president? Who was he? Yeah, Bolsonaro was a was a, a, a bit of a, a, a bit of a maverick character. I mean, he'd been a senator, you know, for for a very long time, for a couple of decades, and been you know been in politics. And yet, despite the fact that yeah, you know, he'd largely you know come from the military, then you know sort of then went into politics, all of a sudden appeared in the media as his sort of outsider, as as, as a as a non politician. As a, as a as sort of a populist candidate, and he's been in that sense compared a little bit to uh, in, in his sort of style to to Trump, 
to those kind of uh, right populists that we've seen around the world, Nigel Farage, for instance, in Britain. But in, in actual fact, Bolsonaro is quite different, I think, to those characters. Whilst he, he did kind of play on that, that kind of populist rhetoric, he, unlike the other ones, has a very clear, uh, defined, far-right, if not fascist ideology that idealises the period of the the Brazilian military dictatorship. You know, he, when 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 he's been asked to say, well, if, he, if there's anything that he would criticise of the Brazilian military dictatorship of the 60s, 70s, you know, what what would it be? And he he said that his his, his main criticism is they didn't go far enough in killing enough communists, uh, and hence why we've got the problem of things like the Workers Party today. So. That, that's really where he comes from. He comes in a, he arises in a context of, uh, on the one hand, as I said, this, this intense lawfare against the Workers' Party and, and this sort of concerted campaign combined with sort of you know, street protests uh, of different flavours against the, the Workers' Party that had sort of decreased its, its popular support. But he also comes in the context of a collapse of all of the other main, main traditional parties. So in, in this sort of scramble to try and find a candidate that could defeat the Workers' Party in the presidential elections, because even after the jailing of Lula, Haddad, who was the, the Workers' Party candidate, was still polling quite well. Bolsonaro sort of you know, comes, comes through the ranks, presents itself as a populist, starts to get a, a bit of support, essentially becomes the anti-PT candidate. And so through this confluence of different far-right forces, evangelical forces, anti-worker party forces, traditional parties that have given up on being able to beat the workers' party and so support Bolsonaro. All this builds the kind of coalition that then allows him to, to win the, the presidential elections and, and become uh, Brazil's president. What actually did he promise the people of Brazil? He largely promised to be a government that wasn't the workers' party government. That's 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 how he was able to build this, this sort of broad coalition in, in, in terms of Actual policies, he, he had very little. He had a lot of extremely provocative statements, questions of you know violence against women and rape, very very provocative statements on that. You know, opposition to the rights of LGBTI uh, candidates. But but in, in in large part, what he he essentially ran on was saying, if you don't want the Workers Party in government again, then vote for me. And and his complete incoherence in terms of actual policies about how to take Brazil forward have been demonstrated by the fact that his government basically since day one has been completely unstable and, and really unable to, to implement any kind of real policies uh, in Brazil uh, where you have a mishmash of ministers, everything from the economic minister who's, you know, sort of a extreme neoliberal Chicago boys style uh, ultra free market ideologue through to ministers who come from more kind of conservative nationalist sections of the military who believe that Brazil needs to have some kind of national development project and it needs a role for the state and a whole mishmash of others as well, foreign ministers who's basically carrying out a global crusade against communism uh, as the biggest threat to the, to the world today. This hodgepodge is, is basically meant that, you know, as I said from day one, a, a completely unstable government that's really not been able to enact any, any policies whatsoever then largely is collapsing. Uh, and, and as I said, because its whole premise was simply we are not the Workers' Party, so vote for us if you don't want the Workers' Party in power. But a good number of those ministers have gone now, haven't they? He's either they've either resigned or he's sacked them. Yes, we're seeing just just in the last couple of weeks, uh, we've seen the, for instance, the health minister 
has gone over disagreements over the how to deal with the with the the novel coronavirus that's causing COVID-19. Bolsonaro has basically said, well, you know, it's just God's work essentially, and, and we'll just see what happens. Whereas the health minister actually thought it was necessary to take some measures to try to to deal with with COVID-19. As a result of that, the the health minister's gone. And we've also seen the Minister of Justice, who I mentioned before, the, the former judge, uh, Sergio Moro, also resigned just in the last few days. And, that, and that's got a very important, powerful blow to the Bolsonaro government cause for two reasons. First is Moro, still amongst the sort of anti-workers' party forces, was still seen as a kind of a moral crusader because of his sort of anti-corruption stance. So Bolsonaro's kind of lost that sort of... Um, that shine of, of sort of, uh, you know, still fighting against anti-corruption because uh, essentially the, the key anti-corruption figure in, in his cabinet has resigned and, and resigned over, you know, claims that Bolsonaro was trying to appoint a new head of the federal police or had, had sacked the previous one because he was investigating into some of the dealings of his family, uh, illegal dealings of his family and one is wanting to appoint a friend into that, into that post. But it's also a big blow because Sergio Moro, you know, at the time of the last presidential elections was also figuring quite well in the polling, although in the end he didn't run. And it's certainly some suspect that his leaving of the cabinet has probably more to do with trying to position himself now as a potential presidential candidate for in, in, in future elections given the crisis of the Bolsonaro government than any particular sort of dispute about the naming of the, the head of head of the federal police, which is the kind of official reason uh, that's sort of all that's sort of been discussed in the media as to, to why he's resigned from Bolsonaro's cabinet. So that's absolutely, there's, there's all kinds of ruptures that are happening, even amongst um, ministers or vice ministers, uh, uh, vice presidents that haven't left the cabinet, but are openly operating in opposition to Bolsonaro. So we had... I think it was the, from memory the vice president meeting with uh, several governors uh, in the country who, unlike Bolsonaro, are attempting to take the COVID-19 crisis seriously and trying to work with those governors to deal with it. So very, and these governors have been in direct conflict with Bolsonaro. So the, the, these are the kind of machinations that happen that mean every day in Brazilian politics just seems to get crazier than than the last day in terms of trying to figure out what, who's supporting who, who's resigning for what reason and, and, and what will happen next in Bolsonaro's government. What's the difference between the power of the president and the power of the governors? Well, the governors are essentially what will be like here in Australia, the state premiers. That's where there's been essentially now an alliance that's been forged amongst a range of governors uh, against Bolsonaro, particularly on this question. Well, on the question of COVID-19 specifically, but essentially forming as a front against Bolsonaro as almost now we're seeing a bit like what we saw in the last presidential elections where forces essentially from the political spectrum largely galvanized against the Workers' Party. This same sort of coalition is now being reforged, but against Bolsonaro. Um, so, but the governors do have a lot of power, particularly those of the larger states, the governor of Sao Paulo, for instance. Um, but um, all of these are, you know, taken very even. Well, the governor of Sao Paulo actually supported Bolsonaro in the presidential elections, but has now turned turned against him. And so we see see these these conflicts that are, that are happening as well. It's a huge country, a big economy in South America. How has he damaged that? 
the reality is that you know the 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 region's economies uh, have obviously suffered extremely uh, as a result of of COVID nineteen. Even before that, I think where the the biggest damage, arguably, that what he's done is really sort of reduce the role that Brazil had previously been playing in the region under the Workers' Party compared to the Workers' Party government. Uh, and that's how obviously then had economic ramifications. So, for instance, the Workers' Party government had attempted to shift Brazil away from essentially being uh, a kind of sort of conduit for US policies in the region to essentially sort of trying to be a, a, its own hegemon in the region and uh, in a policy that both worked to cohere regional integration in opposition to US influence in the region, but one that would be done for Brazil's benefit. So as a result of that, Brazil played an important role, for instance, in the establishment of a number of regional bodies such as uh, UNASUR, the Union of South American Nations, such as the Bank of the South, um, a number of other other mechanisms. Under Bolsonaro, basically, he's withdrawn from all that and gone to his, you know, a, probably one of the most extreme, servile sort of relationships with the U.S. that Brazil has had for for a very long time. And so that's had economic ramifications in terms of the kind of deals that Brazil had been forging in the region that have largely been, you know, let let go those sort of plans. And there's really just been a, a push to increase the kind of you know, large-scale agriculture, other kind of extractive industries to export those resources to, to the US or to other sort of global or North countries. So yeah, they, that, that's had a, a big shift in the foreign policy and the economic policy of, of the country, and which is now taking a turn for the worse given, given what's happening globally with the world economy. What about the detrimental impacts of his policies on the Amazon? Well, we've seen essentially Bolsonaro has made it very clear that you know, the Amazon is open slather. So we've seen the impacts of that being everything from obviously large-scale destruction of large swathes of the Amazon forest uh, for largely soya production, but other, other agricultural production as well, together with continuous encroachment into uh, indigenous territories, which has led to increased violence, you know, a uh, spread of diseases uh, that, that have previously not been present in these communities. So in some cases, even, you know, just outright massacres of, you know, Indigenous com- communities. So the, all of these are, have just been given, you know, free reign under the Bolsonaro government. And so have made the, the situation for those that have been campaigning for a long time to, to defend the Amazon forest, uh, in particular, to defend or to fight with the indigenous people of the regions uh, to protect their territories has made life a lot more dangerous for them. How important has Trump been for him? Trump has been, uh, you know, allowed him to gain a, perhaps a bit more credibility with some of his policies because he's able to draw from Trump for instance, stances on you know COVID nineteen, particularly Trump's earlier stance of that it's you know we're all a bit of a hoax and it's nothing really to worry about. Bolsonaro though has been consistent in that position and so continues to hold to that line, where to the point of where it was suspected that he had contracted COVID nineteen, he was openly walking amongst his supporters, coughing, uh, you know, almost in some ways seemingly deliberately trying to spread the novel coronavirus 
uh, which, you know, as, as Trump, as wacky as some of the things that he said, has not, certainly not, not gone that far. So they've been able to build that relationship. But as I said, I, I, I would differentiate between the two, you know, because I do think Bolsonaro, in, at least in his head, I'm not saying that he, this is what his government is doing, but he, he does have a, a much more cohered sort of far-right vision than Trump does. Uh, in terms of the kind of Brazil he, he'd like to see uh, occur. Uh, as I said, though, his government has been just so unstable from day one that you know, his ability to actually impose that, uh, his vision has, has been very hard, uh, has been almost well, impossible for him. Although in all of this, the, the danger is that uh, as the, the chaos uh, and instability mounts, Bolsonaro has, through his allocation of certain cabinet positions and then through his increased sort of discourse of the presence of the Brazilian military in national politics opened the door for the Brazilian military, you know, back into into politics after it had sort of been pushed back uh, since the, the fall of the dictatorship. So that, that sort of risks looms that are present. And in fact, you know, people are already discussing and debating how much have sections of the military essentially attempted to impose themselves on Bolsonaro and would they be willing to go far enough to, to actually depose him uh, if they felt that you know, Brazil was just descending in, into too much chaos? And that's certainly, for instance, been uh, an issue in regards to the, to, to the COVID-19 crisis because, uh, as I mentioned, uh, some, of, some of the members of his cabinet that are the ones meeting with the governors to try to deal with the crisis uh, in contradiction to Bolsonaro's position that you know, we should do nothing about it our former generals uh, that, that are in his ministry. So, you know, certainly raised the discussion about is there a sense amongst the military that, we, you know, we cannot let Bolsonaro essentially allow, allow you know, Brazil to, to fall into utter chaos and, and crisis. He's made some dreadful statements about the virus, hasn't he? And I'm just wondering how that goes down with the people of Brazil. I think it's been mixed, uh, and obviously, it, you know, it has to be remembered that, that, as you said before, Brazil is such a large country so, you know, in different regions, it's been impacted in different ways. So you have, for instance, certain dates where governors have adopted Bolsonaro's position and just let it go. And, of course, the, the, the health imp you know, impacts of that have been drastic. In other areas, the governors have been working hard to try to contain it. And in other, in other states, it hasn't quite got there yet, so it's not really sort of reached there. But, you know, he's... The fact that he still is president indicates that at least amongst a section of the population, his discourse, his ideas still have a certain amount of traction. And, and, and particularly amongst the more sort of fervent evangelical, you know, Pentecostal sort of followers, which in Brazil is, is, is not an insignificant part of the population. It's a very, you know, it's a minority, but, but a large minority in Brazil. You know, the kind of discourse, that, well, look, this is just God's work. God will look after us, rings true to, to those people. So... It's certainly not a case that you know there's 100% widespread opposition to his position on COVID-19. I would, however, you know, the the indication is certainly from polling and and from the way people are reacting that the majority do feel that you know something has to be done about about COVID-19 and that we can't really uh, you know adopt sort of Bolsonaro's preferred approach of just doing nothing. How would you assess the Brazilian health system at the moment? They have a very problematic health system and they're unlikely to, to well, I mean, they're already unable to, to really cope with it. So they're having to rush to sort of get supplies, but they're, they're facing a number of problems. One is that, you know, one of the first things Bolsonaro did when he came into power was to essentially boot out 
several hundred Cuban doctors that had been brought in by the Workers' Party government to help with the, the health system. So then one of the first things he did was basically, you know, put a big hole into the health system, so much so that, you know, they sort of basically Bolsonaro almost you know, started opening or re, re-engaging with Cuba to see if those doctors could come back uh, at a certain point. Or, and certainly some governors have been just talking with Cuba to bring doctors back to Brazil. Other governors have been, you know, going around the government to secretly sort of, you know, bring in uh, ventilators to be able to deal, deal with the crisis. Secretly, not just because of, you know, not wanting to get into a fight with Bolsonaro, but also because of the, the outright piracy that we know the, the US government is, is implementing in terms of just confiscating medical equipment for its own health healthcare system. So the healthcare system is already on the brink in some states has, has pretty much collapsed. And, you know, certainly, you know, one can only expect that the death toll is going to continue to, to skyrocket in Brazil. And unfortunately, uh, we'll probably will never know the full extent of the death toll there because many won't even get to access the, the healthcare system just because of its dilapidated state, particularly in more sort of remote and regional areas. Next elections in 2022, is the prediction that he'll last that long? It's a brave person who wants to predict what will happen tomorrow in Brazilian politics, let alone if, you, if, if Bolsonaro will last to, to 2022. I think the next few months are going to be pretty critical. You know, as, as we've discussed, you know, ministers are resigning, key ministers are resigning, other ministers are, or, and vice presidents are essentially operating in opposition to Bolsonaro's policies and working with anti-Bolsonaro governors, Military has been starting to make, you know, noises about discontent and, you know, almost the entire political spectrum from the far left, you know, to the right, uh, sort of, you know, if not uniting as one, but certainly coalescing against Bolsonaro and calling for, for Bolsonaro to resign. I wouldn't bet on him making it there. But as I said, uh, Brazilian politics at the moment is, then you know, tomorrow will only be crazier than today. So it's unclear what would happen. But as I said, I think one real danger is the door that's been opened by Bolsonaro to the Brazilian military international politics. What intervention they will make, uh, will that be to support Bolsonaro, to oppose Bolsonaro, to keep Bolsonaro as a puppet but run the, the politics behind the background? These are all real-life possibilities that are, you know, being discussed in, in not just in small circles, but even in, in the media. You know, I think that these are likelihoods, and I think any of those options of the military returning to politics would be would be bad for for Brazil and certainly, well, certainly for for democracy in Brazil. But yeah, I, yeah, brave person to decide if he's going to still be there in uh, 2022. Just finally, Lula out of jail. Has he finished in politics? No, no, Lula's certainly, certainly been active. I am not up to speed as to whether he would be able to stand in the next elections. Uh, my understanding is that he is able to stand in the next elections because none, none of the, the basic, uh, you know, since he's been, he's been released from jail, and none of the you know, previous convictions or court cases would necessarily bar him from running. But that's, I mean, it might not be an attempt to bar him from running. But he's certainly still active. The Workers' Party is still active. The Workers' Party remains the single largest party in terms of supporters in Brazil. Uh, still has an important presence, an important level of support. So we'll, we'll see how the Workers' Party you know, recoups and what kind of active role it plays in the kind of resistance to Bolsonaro at the moment to see if they can help together with 
you know, the you know, social movements, trade union movements, other left groups that exist in Brazil sort of uh, posit a, you know, a sort of a, a left progressive way out of the crisis Brazil currently finds itself in. Thanks, Fred. No worries. Thank you. I've been speaking with Fred Fuentes, activist, journalist and writer. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. On the 11th of February, Greenleaf Weekly published an article written by retired biochemist Cora Winter titled Racism, No Cure for Coronavirus. I'll read the opening paragraph. The spread of coronavirus has been whipped up by the media and governments to promote hostility against China, provoking outbreaks of racism against the people. I spoke with Carol at that time about her article and I rang her again yesterday to find out how she is reacting to the crisis now. Well, when I wrote that article, I really underestimated severity of the virus. I mistakenly thought it was just a campaign by the government to make themselves look a bit better after the debacle over the uh, fires and the way Morrison reacted to the fires and left us, you know, massive problems and the destruction of all the property and homes and lives. But now, I, you know, if I'd looked at it a bit more carefully, I would have realised it was a, 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 a pandemic and we... Um, should have taken more note of what the epidemiologists were saying. That was a wrong assessment and it was it is and was really dangerous. We've been lucky that Australia, because of its isolation mainly, that we've been spared the number of deaths that have taken place, particularly if you compare Italy and Spain and then, of course, America and um, Britain. The epidemiologists had been predicting this could happen for years, but all their funding was cut they couldn't get anybody to listen, um, both in Europe and in the United States, about the possibility of an epidemic of a coronavirus. Yes, that was a, a wrong assessment. But on the other hand, the, both the Australian government and the US in particular under Trump have now used this incident to begin to attack China in a really racist way and to sort of uh, use it to blame China for what's happened in America without taking, accepting any blame for their own mismanagement of the infection in their own country. When the SARS and the MERS epidemics happened, were certain countries blamed for that? Not really. I mean, um, SARS started in uh, Mexico and then spread to the United States and there was a massive rate of, of deaths in the United States. But um, no one was blamed for that, and no one even hardly heard about the MERS syndrome, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which happened with um, the, a coronavirus that spread from camels to humans. But again, they didn't have, they weren't so infectious, so they didn't spread as much. And of course, mainly being confined to Saudi Arabia, there was not a lot of travel taking place there. But so that, that didn't spread, nor with SARS, there was a huge number of deaths, I think something like 55,000 deaths in the United States over the SARS epidemic, but no one talked about it much here because it didn't get that much to Australia. But with this one, it's because of the massive and global economies now and the travel between 
countries is so enormous and this you know took place in Wuhan where there's uh, um, several million people 18 million people I think and so of course there's a number of travelers and then they were able to spread it all around the world when we look at the countries that are suffering the most the most number of infections and deaths is it because the governments just ignored it and thought it's not that serious or is it that these countries that have suffered the most are countries where their health services have been downgraded? Both things happened. Especially in Spain and Italy, they just didn't think it was serious enough. And um, I know in Spain they had a, a fairly good system, medical health system, and they just totally underestimated the infectious rate and the number of deaths that might accrue. But I have a friend living in um, Spain and they told me that they know doctors and medicos and epidemiologists who were asking for funds to investigate coronaviruses and the effect they might have and they were denied any funds for the last you know, decade or so. And the same happened, of course, in the United States. I'm not sure about the situation here. So the situation in Spain was they underestimated it and they've done no research on this, but they have a, a, a reasonable health system and they, they made, or the private hospitals were made public and brought into the medical health system. And in Italy, they've run down their medical health system for years and years and decades under neoliberalism. So they also uh, underestimated and then, but didn't had a very poor medical system to cope with it. And then the situation in Britain and the United States, well, the United States they have no healthcare system whatsoever, you know, for anybody, everybody, it's all done by um, private means. So they were really caught unaware and they did nothing about it, you know, for two months after the, when um, the World Health Organization declared a pandemic and we knew about it by January 1, they did absolutely nothing. And then in um, England, the same, they've run down the National Health Scheme, the NHS, there for decades and decades. And, uh, you know, they decreased their funding over all that time under neoliberalism. And Boris Johnson just came to the, the worst effect of it. And, and oh, what I, makes me fume when I see Boris Johnson giving press conferences and he's got something about God bless the NHS, you know, when they've been so instrumental in destroying that health service. They won't be able to do it so easily now. And in Australia, we were just a bit lucky, I think, you know, being so isolated and um, not that many people coming, flying back from China to here. Well, compare all of what you said there with China, how they've coped with it. They learned from the SARS epidemic and immediately that they realised there was an epidemic on their hands. I mean, they, they did, uh, to be honest, they did try to hide it for at the beginning of um, um, December. They probably knew there, was an, a, there were cases that were alerted by that doctor who unfortunately died from the effects of it, treating the patients. In probably the second half of November, which they then tried to hide that there was an epidemic or possibility of, a, of coronavirus spreading. But by December, by the end of December, it was quite clear that they had a, a pandemic on their hands and they shut everything down immediately. And they, they um, told the World Health Organization about it, I remember, on December 30th. And by January 1, they had closed everything down and 
declared, you know, total social isolation. They even welded the gates of some of the the high rise apartments sh- shut with um with with welding equipment, so nobody could get out. And so they, I think, they only ended up with two thousand six hundred deaths, which was a remarkable achievement since it when it broke since it broke out. You know, so they learned from their experience in South, and they also distributed the virus. Once they had isolated it, they distributed the um, the sequence and also samples all around the world, so other medical laboratories could work on the on the virus. And that's how Australia got it in Melbourne and were able to through the um, Institute there of Medical Research and were able to sequence the virus. It's an RNA virus, and um, be able to grow it in culture. They dealt with it, you know, in and, and you know, I think remember they also they built those um, two or three hospitals in about two weeks to deal with the number of cases. So they were on top of it. They knew what they had to do and they did it. But the other the governments of um, the United States, where now I think they've reached in the United States sixty six thousand deaths, and in Britain it's up to twenty five twenty six thousand deaths. They're responsible. They they should be called you know mass murderers, Trump and Boris Johnson for all these uh, raving about how they saved his life, for what they've done and the lack of responsibility and the lack of... And they were so cavalier about it all. Yeah, they're highly responsible for all those deaths. Well, look at the present and the future. What are the epidemiologists saying now? Well, they're saying it could happen again, you know, anywhere, especially in the poor countries where there's a mixture of killing of live animals in the markets. It could happen anywhere. Um, they're saying there could easily be another epidemic. I know that now China has um, closed down those wet markets where it probably happened in Wuhan, where they were killing chickens and um, meat and um, pigs and bats. And so they're gonna, they'll be doing a lot more, I guess, research now. They'll see it's necessary to do that. But it could happen anywhere easily. But, you know, it's because of poverty, because people have nothing, have very little to eat, have need to collect a lot of wild animals from the forest and from um, the countryside to survive and then take them to the markets to sell to make a bit of money. Unfortunately, what's happened now, the, the Chinese authorities have closed down all those wet markets, but they've gone underground. There'll have to be a total ban on the killing of wild animals in markets in, in, where people are you know, congregating and buying their food. I mean, this could have happened in Africa. It could have happened in Indonesia. It could have happened in Thailand, anywhere where people have... I mean, they've, they've, people have eaten these uh, meats for thousands of years, but it's now become more dangerous because of the globalisation of the economy and people travelling uh, so much and all around, all around the world. So it's so, it spread so easily. Well, they've got to make food accessible, cheap, easily available, and accessible, and and um, and also produced under conditions where not this mass agribusiness, mm. you know, but in small plots or you know without um, sustainably. They've got to be able to produce food sustainably without these mass markets, and the the waste of food because is horrendous because they need to sell it so they don't want to undercut their prices and, and prefer to. Throw it away instead of um, giving it, uh, selling it at a cheap price. You know, look at people who are now forced to dive into garbage bins to get enough food to eat, even in Australia. 
But the thing I'd really like to raise with you, Jan, is that the problem of the racism that's happened as a result of this, that now racism has been sort of uh, come, uh, reared its ugly head in a really violent manner and uh, we're going to have to be very careful about that and call it out wherever we see it. Also, Coral, methods to increase our immune system so that we can cope with these diseases more easily. The situation is, is that this, the virus actually destroys part of your immune system to react. It attacks the, your um, T cells and um, your immune system so that it's not effective and you produce antibodies that aren't effective. That's why, part of the way it works. But it also causes what's known as a cytokine storm in which your, part of your system overreacts and so produces all these um, cytokines, which are a group of um, about 100 different little short molecules made out of proteins, which communicate between all the cells. So the epithelial cells of your lining of your lungs overreact and pour out all these cytokines, and that produces a lot of the the problem of of the lungs not being able to function properly. They've now worked out in detail what it is. But the Cubans have produced a interleukin alpha that helps um, promote a response or immune response to the coronavirus but of course no one's advocating that in the in the western world um, but there's another thing like there should be you should get out in the sunlight and have a lot of vitamin d helps also you need zinc and you need to take zinc and the best source of zinc is actually oysters people should be eating an oyster it's got sort of a low amount of zinc in it, so that that's a good source of zinc to help you fight this uh, virus. Cora, would you have been working in this field if you were still employed? I did a whole lot of different topics, but at the end I was working on um, colon cancer and the genetics of colon cancer. But at one stage I was working, I was working on uh, liver transplants. So I was measuring TNF-alpha, which is one of these cytokines, in the blood to see how people responded to a liver transplant and um, before and after. So I, I just have some a bit of a research experience with cytokines. No, I, I wasn't actually working with viruses and, and epidemics. Apart from zinc and sunlight and plenty of sleep, any more suggestions of what people could do to stay healthy? Yeah, they've got to boost their immune system. So there's a couple of ways of doing it. One of them is a recommendation of taking probiotics, um, which have a mixture of lactobacillus and bifidobacterium as well. So high-quality yogurts, one way. Vitamin D3, that's sunlight. And the zinc, as I said, by um, you can buy it in tablets, but they're usually quite a high dose. So the best way is actually with oysters. Vitamin A, which you can get from dark green and orange vegetables. You need lots of those. Um, They've got antioxidant compounds. If you take some folic acid, that's a B vitamin. usually helps. And also vitamin C, but only in low doses, 60 milligrams morning and evening, they're recommending. Um, The large doses of vitamin C don't work. To also wear a surgical mask when you go outside because... That stops you taking uh, touching your face because the way it's transmitted is through 
your mouth, your eyes and your nose when people touch, you know, they're touching banisters and arm rails and then you touch your face. So if you have a mask on, that will avoid or stop you touching your face so much. And also to wear glasses, sunglasses would help so it doesn't get into your eyes. That's before you get sick. If anyone is sick and they're really worried about it, they need to get one of these oximeters. Then when you heard a talk on the radio um, yesterday, there was a doctor who's recommending these pulse oximeters. You can get them off, well, you used to be able to get them off Amazon for only about $25, but that measures, that can determine whether you're really going to get really sick because it measures the amount of uh, oxygen that's bound to the hemoglobin in your blood and you need about 95, at least it should be about 95% saturated and when it drops down to 90% or less, then you're in um, a bit of danger. The virus seems to be affecting the ability of hemoglobin to bind the oxygen and so when it's circulated through your blood some people when they've got really ill it's only down to 50% um, oxygenation of your of your blood and that's a really 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 dangerous level so that seems to be the main reason why people have died very suddenly after sort of four or five days um, having the illness is due to this really, really low level of oxygenation of the blood. And that can be measured with oximeters, a pulse oximeter, a very simple clip that you clip onto the end of your finger. So if anyone is really worried, that's what they should get hold of and and keep uh, an eye on those measurements. You can buy them online. um, A good quality one is called an Innovo Deluxe. But I, I don't know whether the price has gone up because that's now become a bit more widely known. Well, you should avoid some of the uh, things like aspirin chemicals because they um, increase, they increase the, I think it's one of the receptors, ACE, which will increase the level of that on the cells and therefore that's how the coronavirus binds onto your cells and gets inside your cells. Yes, so, so there's some chemicals that you should avoid. And don't take the chloroquine phosphate. That's useless, totally terrible. That's awful. That's an anti-inflammatory, and that you know the hydroxychloroquine because that uh, that that should be monitored. That's for people who have an autoimmune disease, and that has to be monitored very very carefully. It can cause heart conditions, you know, death. So yeah, avoid that whatever you do. And the issue of racism becoming a a really big problem for Asian people living in Australia. Anyone who looks slightly Asian, there's been um, 180 incidents in two weeks, and that's probably now risen to hundreds of incidents of, of racist abuse by um, white Australians against um, anyone who looks slightly Asian. There was a, a crazy episode in um, incident in um, outside the Chinese consulate in Sydney, which is only a couple of kilometres from where I live, and a man was outside cracking a whip. And for quite a long time, and you can see the um, someone filmed it, and it's a video from their iPhone. And he's cracking this whip, this huge whip, on the footpath right next to, on the same side as the consul, yelling all this abuse at people um, going into the consulate. He's screaming out a yell, uh, horrendous abuse. One of them is saying, "I'll put a bullet in the general secretary's head. I'm going to kill that leader of China." This is now escalated from before. Perhaps you know there was underlying racism amongst the Australians against um, Chinese people. 
but now it's sort of escalated. They might say something under their breath, but now it's escalated into actual violent episodes. Um, and this is uh, some of the incidents have been recorded. There's an incident of two white women, young women, who attacked two Chinese um, Asian young women in in the near the Victoria Markets in Melbourne. There's an incident of uh, two women who were attacked by another young white woman in Marrickville, just near me, a suburb near me in Sydney. There was a, a nurse who's who's working um, in the hospitals in Port Macquarie in northern New South Wales who had a racist letter put into her letterbox. You know, the note was typed and with all sorts of foul language telling them to go back to their own country. And she's Filipino. Her name was Kat Dolendo and a nurse and has been in the country for 20 years. Under the cover of what Morrison is saying and, and, and attacking China for the, uh, and calling for an investigation, you know, it's following in the steps of Trump, of course. He's, he's um, just a puppet of Trump. All this racist violence is now emerging in Australia uh, under this exclusive. They sort of feel vindicated and they can um, be so open about their ra- uh, the racism and racist attacks. There's quite a number of uh, incidents that have been happening, not a, you know, and also in Melbourne and New South Wales and elsewhere. We're going to have to have a campaign about it and to defend our brothers and sisters from Asia against this outrage which is happening. You know, every, anybody who feels um, upset by not having a job or not having a home, whatever, is blaming Asians and are using COVID under the cover of this to really violent and vicious attacks on, on young women and um, people they think are, are defenceless. And it's a real pity that it's not just you know older um, Australians, but young women as well, young white Australian women as well, who feel uh, able to carry out these um, vicious attacks. So I think it's something we have to be aware of and and to fight it as much as we can. And and the Labor Party, in in the figure of Penny Wong, has come out in support of Morrison and an independent calling for an investigation of of what happened. Yeah, so I, and I think what we should do is extend that to an investigation. We, we need an independent investigation of how this virus it did um, escape from the markets, but also an investigation into, into the um, management of the epidemic in all countries around the world and the failures of the of our government and the several governments um, in the world and to see uh, in the way they handled it and, and resulted in these massive numbers of deaths. Yes, yeah, so I think that's an important point about, you know, that I, I feel very sorry for um, and sorry for Asian people. They feel so vulnerable in this situation. Of course, it's not everybody, but then just one incident will make you really frightened and scared to venture into public if you're Asian. Thanks, Coral. Okay. I've been speaking with retired biochemist Coral Winter. At this time of crisis, brought on by the coronavirus, countries need all their resources to limit the impact on citizens. Even some wealthy developed countries are struggling to contain the virus, mainly due to lack of preparation and long-term diminishing of their commitment to health services for all. So it stands to reason that low-income countries, less developed countries, are feeling the pressure 
of corona for their citizens. And this, a group of Australian civil society organisations, CSOs, believe is exacerbated by the need to keep up with external debt repayments and are therefore calling on the Australian Government to cancel debt repayments in 2020 and for the Australian Government to use its influence at the G20 and IMF to expand this globally and give grants, not loans. One of the CSOs is Jubilee Australia Resource Centre and I spoke with the Executive Director, Dr Luke Fletcher. Look, can we first establish the amount of debt that low-income countries owe, over what period, and what these loans have been used for? Different loans from different lenders. There's um, bilateral loans like from countries' aid programs. There's multilateral loans from institutions like the World Bank and the IMF. And then there's loans by private creditors, which is, for example, banks or, for example, when a country puts out its own bonds on the bond market, then investors invest in that country by buying the bonds. But obviously, those investments need to be paid back. So this is different. It depends on the country what sort of kind of proportion of loans go to each creditor. Again, it depends on the country what they're being used for. Um, but generally speaking, in theory, they're supposed to be used for I guess, development of the, of, of the country. It's not always like that in practice, but that's at least the theory. So in terms of the the numbers of the current situation, so it depends on how many countries you're looking at. If you look at the 69 most at-risk countries, then they're likely to require about $90 billion or so to meet their foreign exchange crises during the COVID crisis. That's an estimate by this research institution called Eurodad. And what, what they've found is that if $20 billion, or around $20 billion of that can be cancelled, that will help meet the finance, emergency financing needs for the COVID crisis. So there's a difference between, if you know what I mean, there's a difference between what the loans were for originally and what the need is now, which is about needing to give countries support to meet um, the difficulties they're going to have in meeting their own costs as a result of the COVID crisis. I remember years ago there were countries that were pressured by the dictators that they had in place to mm. to get loans. Are those loans all gone now? It's, look, it's, it's, it really does depend on each country and it's a very complex situation because what happens is that loans get essentially rolled over, so you use new loans to pay the debts on old loans. <laughs> so um, there was a certain amount of debt cancellation and forgiveness in the 2000s, thanks to various programs that were set up. But what we've sort of seen, and especially for the most, the, the most heavily indebted poor countries, about 30 or so did receive quite a lot of forgiveness through a special program that was set up by the G8 and the IMF and the World Bank. But what has happened what we've seen since then is, uh, especially since sort of 2008, 2009, since the GFC, we've seen a lot of new lending, again, by these three different credit groups we're talking about. And again, it depends on the country um, whether these, what sort of regime was in that country, whether it was a auto, you know authoritarian or whether it's a democratic regime or some sort of some sort of middle ground between the two. Well, you know, in terms of how I guess 
the political institutions that, uh, or the level of democracy that was involved in procuring these loans. So yeah, this what we used to call dictator debt is definitely still an issue for some countries, but it's not necessarily. You see the problem across a range of different regimes. I guess is what I'm saying. And I'd imagine that in some of those countries that they have trouble repaying the debt at the best of times. There was sort of confidence after 2000 and after 2008-9, there was confidence that as, as the global economy recovered and as sort of commodity prices were fairly strong, that, um, and a lot of developing countries rely on sort of these exporting primary commodities, there was confidence that, and that was why there were so many new loans given, was there was confidence that um, the debt crisis that we saw in the sort of 90s and 2000s wouldn't reoccur. Although I have to say that, you know, there were some observers, including ourselves, who were pretty sceptical about that. We sort of felt that that sooner or later there would be a new global shock and probably that was, you know, that was when the chickens had to come home to roost and then we'd see some sort of repeat of the cycle that we saw 15, 20 years ago when, when there was a big push for debt forgiveness. So we, we didn't know what that shock might look like. And as it turns out, it's been the the virus that has really caused the shock. But we've seen in the last couple of years, even before COVID, that there were a lot a lot of countries that were, especially in Africa, but in other places, particularly in the Caribbean and even in the Pacific, there were more countries starting to build up these, what we thought were unsustainable debt burdens. So you could argue that this was a very predictable crisis. And I'm just wondering what happens when those countries go to the lender and say, I'm having difficulty paying back. What answer do they get? Well, that's the problem we have, that we don't have a system. We don't have a... So, for example, if a, if a, a company um, domestically or even a, even a, um, a, a municipality like a county council bankrupt. In countries like Australia, we have a, a, tr a bankruptcy regime where there's a process for figuring out how those debts are going to be dealt with. All, all, all the people that the council or the company owes money to, there's a process and there's law that's set up to sort of an independent process by which you figure out, well, okay, how much is owed? How much is everyone going to get? What's fair? You know, we don't have anything like that internationally for countries, and that has that has always been the problem. We have these sort of ad hoc mechanisms again for the different different lenders. So there's a there's a sort of a informal club of creditor countries that Australia is part of that deals with bilateral debts, and then multilateral debts. So debts owed to sort of multilateral institutions like the World Bank and the UN are usually they have that's another process system that usually involves the IMF for that and then but there's absolutely no system for for these um, private debts the, the sort of bondholder debts it's just kind of basically it happens it's just the market and if it, sometimes it goes into the law courts where you know basically investors sue governments to get to get their their money back so there's it's just basically a free-for-all and there's no unified system and that's been the problem that's been the problem for a long time so without that this this crisis is going to keep happening this type of problem is just going to keep happening every every cycle there's going to be the solve the crisis come up come the solution to solve the prices and then there's new lending and then something happens 
and the countries can't pay and you have chaos again. So without a new system, it's just going to keep happening like that, which is why we're calling for a new independent UN-mandated system to deal that countries can go to when they're in debt distress. Are there other organisations such as yours who are appealing for this as well? Yeah, I mean, we have um, we put out a statement with um, a half a dozen or so other Australian civil society groups, sort of development NGOs, and 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 even some of the um, union affiliated groups are are starting to be interested in this. So there's definitely interest in Australia and and worldwide, and it was over 200 different civil society groups signed a letter that was basically calling for you know, debt cancellation, um, debt moratorium for 2020 and also this new system, this new independent system that I'm talking about. So, yeah, there is, there is. I mean, there's a lot long, for many, many, many years, there's been a large group of, of organisations in civil society who follow this issue. And I guess there's, there's been, it's been a bit dormant in the last few years as, the, as debt has been less of a sort of pressing issue for our campaigners, but it's certainly becoming more front and centre again. But surely you need more than just the debt cancelled for this year? That's right, that's right. We, we need, we, I mean, we need, a, we need a new system. And that, 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 that's the problem, is that the political appetite is growing, but it needs to be, you know, essentially this is a decision that has to be made by the, by the wealthy countries. There's discussion at the UN, and for a number of years, the UN General Assembly has been has been pushing for this type of system, but it's being it's being blocked by certain key countries like the US and and Britain who are opposing this new system, and Australia is not being particularly helpful either. So it really is a political question about whether our leaders are, are able to sort of have the the foresight to understand that that things need to change. Can you expand a bit more on what the new system would look like? Well, I mean, the, the, the nitty-gritty details of it, it would, would be, have to be something that would be worked out. But essentially, what you would have would be countries and their creditors meeting on an, on an equal playing field. At the moment, the countries have very little leverage when they have to front up to deal with their creditors and the creditors and sort of demand and impose the terms. So the idea is that you have a system where... Um, there's a um, there's there's consideration given to the needs of the creditor, like how is how how is the country going to feed its people, and how is the country going to keep its living standards at a at a reasonable level, and and what would that look like for a debt mechanism? So these things need to be taken into account, and that's why you need an independent sort of umpire, as it were, rather than at the moment. It's just a negotiation between two uneven parties, which we always know. We all know how that always turns out. So I mean, it doesn't it doesn't have to be through the UN. You could set up a different sort of tribunal. It seems to be at the moment that the UN is the most popular venue for such a discussion and mechanism to take place. And I'd imagine that even before a crisis like the coronavirus, that there are countries where debt repayment is causing drastic problems for the people in, the, in terms of being able to educate the people, have housing, health, those sorts of things. It's the emphasis on paying back the debt. Yeah, I mean, we saw this problem back in the sort of late 90s and 2000s as well, where we saw, in some cases, debt repayments were greater than 
than the health costs of the entire country of the budget. So in terms of one in terms of one year, spending on debt repayments is greater than spending on on health needs. I mean that that's a pretty obscene situation, and that's starting to happen again. That there's there's a lot of countries where that is once again the case. So that that's a real indicator, a real kind of flag that you've got a, a debt crisis when you have more and more countries where that's that's happening. Um, but like I said earlier, it's really been the last couple of years that the indicators have started to. There's a, there's a sort of the main indicators you look at in terms of the sustainability of debt is like how much what's the proportion of debt to gross domestic product, but also the other one that's important is what's the proportion of external debt. So that's debt owed to foreigners. What proportion of that to your exports? Because a lot of countries use export earnings to pay their foreign exchange costs, including debts. So these sort of indicators have been heading in worrying directions for a lot of countries, as I said earlier. So it certainly predates the corona crisis, but the, the, the COVID crisis is, is really making it, you're going to make it much, much worse because the, the, it's not just about the health needs that countries are going to need to, not, it's not just that they're going to need to invest in emergency response and in health services, but there's going to be a global contraction. In fact, it's already started. And so countries are not going to be able to earn as much as they as they have been. So it, it, they're just going to be hit really hard in, in, in a whole lot of ways. Do you have examples of countries in our region where that's already happening? There's a few countries in, a, in, in the Pacific that are vulnerable. There's about three in particular that we're looking at closely. But... It's also a, a, a global problem because it's not just, you know, the, 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 probably the heart of the problem is in Africa, but we're expecting problems in, in Africa, in Latin America, in the Pacific, and even in, in, in Asia as well. We don't yet have enough data to, uh, because it's just so soon, the COVID crisis just yet, we don't have specific data yet. We've only got sort of projections, but the projections are sort of bad across the board. You mentioned a couple of countries, Australia included, who are not doing the right thing by the people. Are you having many conversations with government ministers or departments to try and push this forward? I mean, we'd like to. We are just now starting to talk with our colleagues in the sector about what, what that would look like. Um, we certainly sent a letter to to the Treasurer, Mr Frydenberg, a couple of weeks ago expressing our concerns in terms of whether we're able to do more than, in terms of we're able to sort of um, increase our our level of, of contact and exposure. That's really a, a question of, of how much resources we're able to muster both individually as our own organisation, which is a tiny organisation, and also how many of our partners in civil society partners are, are going to take this up. So as, as usual, it's a question of resourcing and where, where do you put scarce resources, but um, yeah. So we're here from you, it's the next step for you. The next steps are to look at what's happening in the international discussions on this. So there is there are some key dates coming up in the next few months. There's a UN General Assembly meeting in, in a couple of months and then there's the there's a G20 meeting as well coming up in July, G20 Finance Ministers meeting in July, there's the UN General Assembly meeting in September. 
those are the opportunity that's where we're expecting the crisis to have worsened by then and so we think it's likely that there'll have to be another discussion around a stronger response at the moment the response has been quite limited there's been announcements by the G20 and the IMF of small amounts of debt suspension and very small essentially very small numbers of in terms of dollar terms so what we're really looking for is a broader a broader first of all not suspension but cancellation um or um so that's the first thing. Secondly, a broader number of countries who are eligible than just the very, very, at the moment, it's, they're really just talking about the most, most vulnerable. And thirdly, we're looking to, for an agreement to be able to incorporate all the creditors. So at the moment, the focus is mainly being on just the bilateral creditors and some multilateral creditors like the IMF, but there needs to be discussion of the other multilateral creditors, but also the private Credits as well, so there's a lot more, um, you know, a lot more needs to be done than the announcements that we've seen over the past couple of weeks. And as you've said, there's lives at stake, really, isn't there? There, yeah, there are going to be. So but it's not only, you know, in terms of COVID response, you know, the debt issue is important, but it's not the only one. That we, we, there's going to need, need to be support, material support in terms of grants, emergency grant aid. That's going to need to be stepped up, and, and aid programs are going to need to step in and assist. So debt, debt cancellation is one way of providing emergency financing, but it's not—it's probably alone not going to be enough. So there's going to be need to be emergency grant aid, and then there's other other longer-term structural things that we need to talk about apart from a new debt mechanism. Things like we're going to have to look at at um, the issue of tax justice and how taxes to help countries finance both the COVID response and the recovery from the COVID crisis. We're going to have to look at the trade agreements and the way that they're impacting countries being able to respond to the crisis. So there's a whole menu of things that we're going to have to look at and that's just that's just one of them. And to encourage the Australian government to increase its ever-diminishing aid, particularly to the Pacific? Absolutely. I mean, I think there needs to be, you know, proportion has been going down and down and down over the last decade. So... But also, it's not just about quality, it's also about quantity and the type of conditions that are given to aid, and both through the Australian aid program, but also through through the World Bank and the IMF programs that have, you know, donors such as the bank and, and private and individual donors have been pushing a privatisation agenda, a privatisation of services, which we've seen in the crisis is, is, is what has what left many systems really unprepared for this crisis. So it's not just about how much aid, but also about the conditions that, that are being put to aid and the, and the, and the sort of um, the pressure that's been put on company on countries to essentially adopt really poor policies that and that have left them really vulnerable to to this crisis. And we've seen that across the world, not just in developing countries but in developed economies as well that you see the, the stronger your public health system the better your response to COVID is going to be so really it's 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 more than just dollars and cents it's also about making sure that the public sector is is as strong as possible so that countries can be resilient for crises like these. Dr Luke Fletcher is the CEO of Jubilee Australia Resource Centre. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM. Dr. Margie Beavis wears a number of hats, all very successfully, a local GP, part-time academic, 
Vice President of Medical Association for the Prevention of War and Vice President of ICANN, International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. Today we focus briefly on the first two and then more extensively on the peace and anti-war issues. Margie, as a GP in a Melbourne suburban practice, how is the virus and its containment impacting on day-to-day lives of doctors in your clinic? Well, look, it was really odd. At the beginning, we were completely slammed. Sort of two or three weeks, people were calling. The, the phones would run continuously all day, and people were very concerned and not sure what to do, and we had we were just more busy than ever been. And then suddenly the penny dropped that really doctors' surgeries weren't all that healthy. And so people have been staying away in both. And that's good in some ways because it certainly is good to be social distancing and important and important we keep that going for another couple of weeks at least. I shouldn't even say that. I think if someone said this is like we were a goal ahead in the middle of the first quarter in a long-term illness, we're going to have to be social distancing for a very long time until we get a decent vaccine, which hopefully will happen. Anyway, but what happened at the practice was that things suddenly got very quiet. We were doing a lot of telephone calls, but in terms of seeing people in person, I would be seeing about a quarter of my normal patient load, as would the other GPs. We're giving a lot of flu vaccines, and if people haven't had their flu vaccines, I'd suggest they ring their GP and see when the flu vaccines are coming in, because they come in waves, and sometimes your practice sometimes they won't so you sort of need to ring up and get yourself on the list but flu vaccines are important this year particularly. How satisfactory is a phone conversation? Mixed. There's lots of things you're not seeing. You're not actually seeing someone and seeing how they actually look is really useful for a start. With psychiatric counselling consultations you miss out on a whole lot of body language and posture that really makes a big difference to how you talk to someone and you don't really get to see them properly. I mean, it's certainly a lot better than nothing, and certainly if people don't want to go and see the GPs, I'd encourage them to ring up and just book for a phone consultation. It's very good to have them available in this situation, but there's a lot of people who are staying away who need to have things checked. People who've got blood in their poo who might have a bowel cancer or people who have diabetes has got out of control. There's a lot of things that I think do need attention, and I think the numbers are so low in Victoria now, it's quite safe to make an appointment. You can go to your GP, you can ask to wait in the car and then just walk straight through to your GP's rooms. I think it's a, a bit concerning what's going to happen in the next few months with people who've got sicknesses that haven't been picked up or treated properly at the moment. And your work at Melbourne University, what does that usually extend to? I have a lovely job that I've done for more than a decade, which is basically every year you get 12 students, the first year medical students, and you talk to them about how to take a history, in other words, how to speak with patients and remain patient-focused and patient-centred, and then also how to examine them. And I love it because you have 12 students for six months and just teaching them. But now we're doing it online, and whilst I can certainly help them with talking to patients, teaching them how to examine someone via Zoom is bordering on hilarious at times. You're sort of trying to explain concepts and demonstrate things that... Um, really you need to do in person and you need to watch them do it to check that they're doing it right. But the students are, are a very committed and motivated bunch and they work hard and we'll get through it and towards the end of the year I think the social distancing will be less and we'll get back to tutorials and we'll be able to, to do the job in the session. Well, moving on to your work with peace and anti-war, one important issue which 
unfortunately has been somewhat sidelined this year is the vote on the UN. On the 7th of June 2017, 122 nations voted to adopt an historic agreement. What's happened with that now? Well, it's still chugging along. Certainly the virus has slowed things down. All the governments are sort of dead in their tracks trying to deal with this un- unprecedented pandemic. But full credit to a country like Namibia, which in the 20th of March still managed to sign and deposit its ratification. So we're now up to... We have 81 countries, as you said, 122 countries endorsed at the United Nations out of 194. 81 countries have signed on to this treaty so far, and it keeps increasing, and 36 countries out of the 50 that we need for this to come into force have ratified, a ratifying meaning passing through the parliaments. So full credit to Namibia, who passed it through their parliament and... We did a virtual uh, ratification, which is the first time ever at the United Nations where a treaty has been ratified via online facilities. But we're hopeful that there's a lot of countries who are actually pretty close to ratification, and so we're hopeful that this won't be too delayed, but obviously people's minds and priorities are quite appropriately elsewhere at the moment just while they're dealing with this epidemic, pandemic. Has the cut-off date been extended? There isn't a cut-off point. It's just when 50 countries have signed and ratified it. So 50 countries have passed it through their parliaments or whatever their particular country requirements are. So it's 36. We've only got 14 to go. We're way past, we're well past two-thirds, and we're hoping, before the pandemic, we're hoping, it certainly will be delayed, but I think it's inevitable. It's, it's coming down the track, um, whether it's this year or next year. It's ironic with all the work that's been done here over many years that we can't get our government to sign or ratify? Yes, it is very ironic. Uh, the current government is, is, for the most part, pretty clearly opposed to this because they believe it's key to the US alliance, and that's actually a, a furphy. I mean, the, the Thai government and the New Zealand government have both signed and ratified and been very active, particularly New Zealand, and that's done nothing to damage their US alliance. So the excuse that it will damage the US alliance and damages the non-proliferation treaty are both clearly not true. So um, we just hope that the current government will start to, now that we've had one catastrophic low-risk event happen, that they're able to um, see that this is another catastrophic low-risk event that is actually entirely preventable if they can take the right steps. Next to the 10 points put together by Medical Association Prevention of Wars President Dr Sue Wareham, emphasising health care, not warfare. <laughs> I'm very pleased to say there's only six. <laughs> I think I wouldn't remember ten. Look, yes, she wrote a terrific article. Where people people want to subscribe to a really good blog. The blog put together by uh, John Manager, Pearls and Irritations, covers a whole lot of stuff. And he this is published in Pearls and Irritations and then in the Crikey publications as well. Basically, the first, there's sort of six that Australia could really take to focus its priorities better and obviously healthcare would be a much better way to spend our government money and our government energies. Um, the first thing would be to get out of wars of choice. I mean, we still have 600 people in the Middle East and we've sent a couple of hundred people on the HMS Toowoomba to the Straits of Hormuz. Um, why we're getting involved in wars of choice is beyond me and beyond a lot of people. Our military budget this year is nearly $39 billion, um, so $39,000 which is over $100 million every day. 
Um, so we're sort of spending huge amounts of money on a really... I mean, I think having a defence force is important, but to be, we've spent about $10 billion being in Afghanistan alone. And if you look at the Americans, they've spent $6.4 trillion in the Middle East so far in the last couple of decades. Anyway, so that's ceasing wars of choice. Second, we'll stop profiting from wars. Australia is setting up businesses to profit from wars, and we are currently selling arms to people like the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates who are accused of war crimes, who are contributing to the appalling situation in places like Yemen. Um, it's really not right, as, as Tim Costello put it, do we really want to be famous for profiting from war? With the economic interests vested in war, why would Australia work for peace? So it's sort of depressing. We have a, a Minister for Defence Industries. We have an actual entity called the Centre for Defence Industry Capability, which helps promote weapons industry in Australia. Um, the weapons industry has got involved in STEM, so education, particularly in schools and universities. Uh, the government has a $3.8 billion fund to encourage the weapons industry. It's just an outrageous misallocation of funds when you look at... I mean, there's really clear research coming from America, which I've talked about on a previous program, where they show that you, know, you can you spend the same amount of money in health or education or even renewable energy. You'll get many more jobs, but your jobs are what are used to justify this. And I personally think the reason this prioritisation has happened is that we've got really excellent lobbyists in Canberra in the weapons industry. And, <laughs> again, reform of lobbying is known that MAPWs work. Okay, so I'm digressing. I'll get back onto, onto the job. Um, number three is to stop sanctions and blockades. You just have to look what's happening in Iran and what's happening in Gaza, in Gaza of COVID-19. And really, Gaza has for many years been a really, you know, the world's largest open-air prison is how people have described it. And the blockades just... The healthcare in both Iran and in Gaza will be significantly impaired by all these blockades. Australia should be arguing that these blockades should be lifted. The fourth was to restore Australia's overseas aid. We're currently spending less than a third of the OECD recommended levels. It's our lowest level ever in 60 years. Uh, for Yemen, uh, we're spending more money promoting our military exports than we have humanitarian aid for Yemen, so it's really disgraceful. Um, Yemen's particularly vulnerable to COVID pandemic. That's one little tiny glimmer of light in that there's now a ceasefire in Yemen because of COVID-19, but there's still the Australian approach to aid is certainly not adequate nor um, well-targeted. Number five is promoting co cooperation. So, again, increasing funding, as well as increasing funding for overseas aid, we think it's really important to increase funding for diplomacy. Diplomacy is incredibly cost-effective when it works to present war, and yet we've nearly cut diplomatic funding by, I think it's over 40% in the last 20 years. So it's, it's again, the priorities are much more, more warless, helpless prevention. The sixth point we make, or Sue made in this excellent article, was addressing health threats that are far worse than COVID. And these are A, nuclear weapons, and B, climate change. And yet Australia seems to be burying its head in the sand for both of those. So really the overall take... From Sue's article, basically, we can do so much better. I mean, we're spending $200 billion in the next decade, $200,000 million, on defence, just the weaponry, let alone the actual Defence Department. And, I mean, I, I think I've also talked on this program about the submarine program, which is just outrageous, and it's $80 billion, 
and over the whole program it's going to be $225 billion. So you're getting big numbers. But when you think that $225 billion is about what's been spent to try and help the economy chugging along, um, these subs, which are not going to be rolling off the production line till 2032, 2034, if we're lucky, and which they pretend are going to still be current by 2080, they're going to be obsolete given the drone, the underwater drone situation, and it's it beggars belief that we're spending this much money on submarines. But so what we're saying is we should be prioritising healthcare, not warfare. We should be spending a lot less on military and a lot more on health. And also we should be just looking at the expert advice on nuclear weapons and climate change. Sorry, it's a very long spiel, but it's a terrific article and I recommend people go to Pearls and Irritations and Google Sue Wareham because she's written a lot for them. But this is a particularly good one because it summarises a lot of issues that we need to address. And you can think in the shorter term, the $500 million that's going to go to extend the Australian War Memorial, the new director has now said that he's going to go ahead with it. It beggars belief that that's going ahead. The War Memorial is already a very large facility. It already is number one on TripAdvisor for Canberra. It's already a terrific thing, and to spend that money knocking down an award-winning hall that the architects, the architects, the Australian Architects Institute, I've got their name slightly wrong, Australian body in charge of architecture is up in arms about the proposals to demolish this hall, Anzac Hall. And in addition, the main outcome of this huge expansion is that it, it's just to show off more weapons. And that money should be being ploughed into health for sure. I mean, veterans' health alone could do with a huge boost, but also you look at what's happening in Aboriginal communities, what's happening in, I mean, in public housing there's so many areas where you could really boost Australia's health by actually putting some proper investment in, and to spend half a billion dollars is, is really a self-indulgent boondoggle, really. Important part of that is health for all. We've seen the almost inevitable death rate in the US for the virus, poor health services, particularly for the poor, the marginalised and minorities. What is our record so far in protecting those most at risk? Well, if you have to look at the most vulnerable in our communities in Australia, the first, I'd say, were the First Nations people, um, particularly the elders who have huge, and even the middle-aged Aboriginal individuals are much higher risk for diabetes, for kidney disease, for heart disease, for so many illnesses that really if COVID-19 got into those communities, it would be shocking. And so bad is the housing in those communities that the overcrowding means that there would be no chance of isolation the communities themselves have taken strong steps to self-isolate, but there's so much more that needs to be done. There's a need for extra accommodation, so there's an ability for isolation and quarantine if needed. There needs to be really good language information in, in, in First Nations languages. There needs to be guaranteed supply of foods and essential needs, because just like in the cities, there's been some stockpiling, and if you're going to try and isolate a community to protect them, or to protect themselves, they need to be able to be sure that supplies are coming in. They need to make sure that their health services are properly funded and have enough equipment and uh, masks and tests. I mean, even here down in Melbourne, we have for some weeks had not enough protective equipment by a country mile, and I think that's across the whole Australian community, but it would be even put up there. And another thing is that all the 
sort of people, the black deaths in custody is a big issue. Um, they really should be thinking about urgently releasing people on remand or people with minor sentences and those eligible for early release because institutions are, once COVID gets into an institution, as we've seen in nursing homes, it can absolutely rip through it and cause a lot of deaths. The other really vulnerable group is the asylum seekers, and some of those are holed up in hotels in Melbourne in very close proximity. But other asylum seekers, I mean, there's whole swags of asylum seekers who can't access Medicare. Um, there's also sections, people on bridging visas and some temporary visa holders can't get any job seeker payments or any sort of financial assistance. Um, similarly, I feel for the students and for the temporary protection visas who've lost their jobs, the workers here really accept their taxes, but they're also very vulnerable. But I think Australia, particularly with regard to Indigenous peoples and with regard to asylum seekers, could do so much better. And when you talk about the health of the Indigenous peoples, you only need to think about the denial of the Uluru Statement. Absolutely. I mean, this is this COVID nineteen has the ability. I think it was seventeen eighty nine when chickenpox first ripped through an Aboriginal community. This would be devastating because the elders are such a key part of any community. They they not only sort of beloved family, but also they are the historians and the law keepers and the sort of professors of those communities. And they they hold so much and are so important. So it's absolutely critical that these communities are empowered to protect themselves and to do that they need considerable government support. And the Uluru Statement? Oh, this, the Uluru Statement, the government asked the Aboriginal communities to come together and provide a consensus document. They've done that and it's still not being taken seriously and I think that's appalling. Another way is to stop military forces deploying in and around the Pacific. We've seen the disastrous impact for the people of Guam. Yes, for many, many years, but most recently when the um, Theodore Roosevelt, the US carrier, Air Force carrier, when it had COVID diagnosed amongst many of its soldiers, the uh, ship docked in Guam. And Guam has only a couple of community hospitals. It's got very few ICU beds. And yet thousands of US sailors were put into local hotels instead of kept on the military bases. And this was really distressing for them. I mean, the, the locals were very distressed because obviously hotel staff are very vulnerable to the infection. And Guam has been turning away cruise ships because it was fearful of COVID, but it actually because it's the US protectorate had no authority to block a US warship. The US military was not prioritizing the health of the people of Guam. The proposed exercises they've got coming up in June, July, which are the um, every two years they have exercises with about 25 countries. Again, those RIMPAC, they're called the RIMPAC exercises, need to be cancelled because if you're going to get together tens of thousands of troops, and these troops are often on ships in close confines, we've seen what's happened with the Ruby Princess, and I don't think the Navy has got much social distancing ability either. It would be potentially catastrophic for Hawaii, and the governor of Hawaii has asked for impact to be postponed, as have other community groups. It remains to be seen whether it is or not. But Australia should be standing out on this one. I mean, we're, we're brave enough to stand up and say, let's have a, um, in an inquiry of the World Health Organization, we should be brave enough to stand up and say, let's cancel these exercises. They're a really bad idea. What about the deployment of US troops into Darwin? Well, that also should... I think the deployment's been deferred for the time being. It shouldn't be happening at all, in our view, but certainly for the time being, I think it's been delayed. 
what we would like is some transparency about the deployment of US personnel into Alice Springs because the, the large um, US supposedly joint facility with Australia at Pine Gap has a large number of US personnel and it would be really good to have some transparency about working there because certainly US the US personnel should not be coming in. The US itself is, as everyone would have known from the numbers that are coming out, almost got a million cases of COVID. It is in a really bad way because of mismanagement early in the epidemic and we do not want United States people coming to any part of Australia without proper quarantine and proper protections and certainly going to the Northern Territory where there are so many Indigenous communities is foolhardy to say the least. Margie, can you comment on the attack on the WHO? I think, like the UN, every body collectively is a political body run by the countries that subscribe to it. I think the WHO came out very early saying that this was a health emergency and putting countries on notice that this was a health emergency. They were slow to come out and declare it a pandemic. Now is not the time for an inquiry. Maybe down the track it mightn't be a bad idea. I certainly think it should be done very carefully and by an independent body. And I think Donald Trump's attacks on the WHO are largely about him trying to shift the blame anywhere but him. I mean, I think he's certainly working very hard to say, it wasn't me, look everywhere else. And I think the WHO actually has not performed badly at all. Um, I do think they were slow to declare a pandemic, but I think overall they did not do a bad job. So the blame-shifting exercises that happen, particularly in America but everywhere politically, one of the reasons why the WH is being attacked. Certainly they weren't perfect, but this is this was a number of mistakes made this pandemic by almost everybody. So, um, yeah, they could have done better, but they certainly could have done a whole lot worse, and they certainly warned about it being a public health emergency very early. Finally, Margie, the UN Secretary-General's appeal for all wars around the world to stop. Has that had any impact at all? It's interesting that there's a ceasefire in Yemen. origin. It'll be wonderful to see ceasefires elsewhere, but so far not happened. Appalling that, you know, war destroys health systems, war creates refugees and people displaced from their homes. Um, you think of those families in the refugee camps in Syria, you know, there's 40-odd children that the government's turning a blind eye to. There's so many, I mean, there's something like 65 million refugees globally, and COVID getting into those camps or getting into people who are displaced will be just appalling. And I think it's a very well-placed request. I think stopping the fighting in Yemen has meant that some people have returned to their homes. Um, certainly some people in Syria have returned to their homes. But it's really a very powerful call. It would be wonderful if governments took it more seriously. 1.8 trillion, so that's 1.8 thousand thousand million dollars that's spent on weaponry. Um, I think if we spent less than a third of that, we could we could meet most of the millennium budget sustainability development goals and eradicate poverty. Do, do wonderful things. The the spending on weaponry is such a waste of money is such a terrible um outcome. I mean if you people Australia talks about security and if keeping your people safe and well is not security, I don't know what is, but we spend an awful lot of money on, on weaponry and defence that would be so much better allocated to health. Thanks, Margie. Well thanks Jen. Nice to talk to you. And I've been speaking with Dr. Margie Beavis. The three, the three of us reckon three C R is the best.
With shutdowns, social distancing, life has changed dramatically for many people and those in the community sector, and I include 3CR, have had to adapt to very different ways of engaging with others and carrying out what used to be normal functions. The Port Phillip Eco Centre in St Kilda is no exception. So to find out how the centre and the workers and volunteers are managing, I spoke at the weekend with Neil Blake, founding director of the centre, with more than 30 years' experience in protecting Port Phillip Bay, and in addition to this, he is the Port Phillip Baykeeper. I asked him first about the changes that the staff and volunteers have made in the past couple of months and the learning processes to make these changes. It's been uh, just a total turnaround because uh, we are, are working from home. We've had to shut down uh, our uh, community activities with engaging face-to-face um, because of the, the lockdown. It's been a significant change in that sense in that we don't have the same social interactions and uh, but at the same time, we still have to do practical and, and worthwhile work. <laughs> and there is plenty to do. We've been focusing on uh, communicating issues about the environment and things to celebrate uh, through online means. Uh, you know, so I mean, most people are sort of, because they are contained in their four walls for much of the time, they're, they're reliant on their um, online communications to uh, entertain themselves as well as keep informed. And so there is an opportunity in that in terms of us conveying our and communicating our message. Who are you communicating with and to? All of our usual stakeholders. Uh, I mean, a big part of what the ECHO Centre wants to do is empower local communities to uh, understand their local environment better and to take action to... uh, celebrate and protect it. It's just individuals in their own home, volunteers, but then there are other organisations who are at a similar mission to ours and, you know, we're sort of hatching plots to uh, you know, come up with some collaborative projects and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's, it's much the same as what we always did, but we're just having to find other ways to go about it. What about school children? Because that's a big part of your work or a part of your work. How have you carried that through? That's a, a good example, actually. One project we're um, working on at the moment is uh, we've been um, commissioned by the City of Port to engage the community in a project called Nature Spot, which involves uh, searching in public areas, but also just in um, private gardens, in home gardens, for any wildlife or plants that are sort of people think are of interest and if they can take a photograph of those using their mobile phone, then they can upload that photograph to a uh, web page on the Echo Centre's website, the Nature Spot web page. You know, we'll endeavour to try and get the proper identification of whatever the species is and also uh, uh, run a little bit of a commentary on why it would be there and why it's important and, uh, you know, just anything of interest. So schools uh, programs, you know, know, children and classes have been invited to contribute to that project. How free are children to actually go out and do these things? Well, uh, they can do it on their on their balcony if they like, you know. <laughs> so it's a matter of getting people to be a bit more observant about what's around them. And, you know, so that's, uh, I was interested in that, uh, you know, just I saw um, someone taking a photograph of the sunset in St Kilda the other day from the foreshore and uh, they didn't happen to notice that there were two hoary-headed grebes about 
in the water around about three or four metres away from them, you know. So often people uh, see the bigger picture, but they don't actually, they're not trained, I suppose, to actually look at the, the smaller things that are around them that they tend to take for granted. So, And that's what we're interested in, is getting people to be more observant about the microhabitats that exist, whether it's in their backyard or in the street where they live or in the park where they live, uh, or just getting a closer connection to, to nature in wherever they live. A bit of your work to do with surveys on the beach looking for creatures who live in the sand or whatever, has that stopped mm -hmm. completely or can people still go onto the beach? People can still go onto the beach. Um, I guess, uh, you know, the issues are how do they get there? <laughs> so I have, a, I have a challenge like that because uh, we're doing that. Well, I'm working with um, some students from Deakin University who live in different parts of Melbourne to do a shoreline shell survey, uh, design a method that can um, involve people in monitoring freshly killed shellfish that are uh, turning up on beaches in St Kilda. So we're wanting that particularly to uh, take a note of what possible prey could be for northern Pacific sea stars which come into St Kilda Harbour each winter. Uh, so uh, just to give us some insights into what that pest species is doing to the mollusk population. The question is, how do the students get to the beach? You know, So they've got to take public transport, there's all those kind of issues. And if they do get there, then they need to be appropriately distanced. It's not a simple procedure to come up with a an easy strategy, but anybody who lives nearby the beach is welcome and free to walk along it as long as they don't sit and, and congregate. So that's my understanding of the situation in St Kilda at the moment. Yeah, I guess we're just working within those constraints, uh, but also, um, you know, we need to be mindful though of uh, broader, uh, well, angst, I suppose, for want of a better word, in the community because people are wanting to see the lockdown uh, successful. And, uh, you know, even if they, we may feel justified in going out and uh, conducting exercises out in the public, uh, there will be people who will say, well, you shouldn't be staying at home. You know, well, you know my grandfather's uh, <laughs> under threat from this and, you know, what are you doing out there? You know, we, the longer people continue to sort of uh, try and get around and, and avoid uh, being locked down, the longer we're going to have to accept this uh, the lockdown situation. So it, it's a challenging uh, thing to come up with uh, an appropriate. Are you yourself able to go to the beach? I didn't uh, for um, the first four weeks or so of, uh, of the uh, lockdown or even when the first um, controls were starting to be imposed. It would have been technically okay for me to have gone down there, but I just thought, well, it's going to, be, going to be doing that. It's just sending a message to the broader community that anyone can do what they like. You know? So unfortunately, that's the challenge we have is uh, how do we um, convey to the wider population, some people who are not particularly interested, <laughs> that, that we all need to take some responsibility for this and take some pain to try and overcome the current situation. Has the Eco Centre completely shut down? Yeah, it is closed um, now, but all of the staff are working from home. Uh, we've got plenty to do, uh, you know, so in that sense that our physical premises, though, is, um, has been closed. And uh, so another one, for example, in relation to our volunteers, we each Friday generally have a, a garden group of maybe up to 20 volunteers come and 
uh, gather to maintain the um, productive garden and the other um, cultural gardens, etc., been unable to continue that practice. But we're trying to uh, maintain contact through online sort of uh, presentations with our volunteers. So there'll be a regular series each Thursday evening uh, where people can um, log on to a Zoom sort of presentation of uh, different topics that uh, we're working on in, in the community. So, uh, yeah, we, we're having to we're really focus on uh, brushing up our skills on that sort of online presentations and connections. You have a community garden, is that correct? We have a garden that is um, uh, maintained by community members. It's it's a distinct uh, difference in, in many respects from other, most other community gardens where individual people actually have their own plots in community gardens quite frequently. So ours is a, a collective garden where <laughs> you know, people look after the whole garden and uh, and enjoy the benefits. Who's looking after it now? Oh, well, we have, you know, it's, it's actually a time when I suppose in terms of uh, watering, which is a regular thing, particularly through the summer to keep it going, it's not such a critical uh, issue at this moment. We would have one volunteer would come in, you know, rostered to just um, do a bit of watering or one of the uh, bigger activities which we've had, uh, had to curtail, is we have a community compost uh, well, actually, half a dozen of them in the, in our community garden, and we've had to shut that down. So, residents who would ordinarily be able to um, bring their food scraps, kitchen scraps, uh, and put them in the bays, which were maintained by our volunteers, because we can't have that ongoing volunteer and the, the uh, collective effort to maintain that compost uh, happening, we've had to shut that down for the short to medium term. Similarly with the Repair Cafe? Yes, the Repair Cafe has um, had to uh, close down too, as I understand it, I, although I haven't been involved in that. I did note that in the calendar, though, that uh, it's not the next one's not going to be happening, so I'm assuming that's... Uh, yeah, it's just the, the difficulty we've got with um, having an open face-to-face -face situation. We can't call the Repair Cafe an essential service. Or, <laughs> Some would argue yeah, that we need to start uh, looking at you know recycling and repurposing all our, and repairing uh, um, goods so we don't have to just throw them away and get and buy new ones. But yeah, so they're, they're just, that's just the life at the moment. We just have to uh, take that and um, try and move on. Give us a couple of examples of some of your Zoom meetings with various people. Uh, well, actually, one project which um, we're working on is that called future-proofing the bay at the moment and the aim of that is uh, to uh, try and uh, generate uh, collaborations between different sectors, stakeholders who have an interest or responsibility for uh, looking after the bay. And so we've uh, uh, invited a range of different people from government organisations, departments to not-for-profit community organisations that have a regional spread to um, other local community groups who you know have a focus on that one particular local patch, uh, and also uh, several businesses to um, take a survey to show what their priority areas for looking after the bay were over the next five years. So out of that, we've ended up with 10 different categories and topics that uh, where we're inviting different stakeholders who have a common issue or priority to actually in, 
engage in a workshopping process uh, where we can start to build information about that particular issue uh, and also the stakeholders that have an interest so that ultimately we hope that there will be strategies and recommendations for uh, addressing the issue uh, that um, we can bring together collaborative projects to achieve um, good outcomes in, on that issue. So that's one of the Zoom um, meetings. We've had several, two workshops so far, one on uh, climate change as an issue uh, and another one on marine pests. That was, we're at this stage, just trialling the method and we want to evaluate it. We're, we're also working with four students from Massachusetts on this, so they were actually going to be having a seven-week placement at the Eco Centre to work on this project, but because of the uh, corona, they've had to stay, stay put, and we, so we're corresponding on a, a weekly basis a couple of times a week, meeting with them via Zoom, and we've also conducted the two workshops that they've been involved in. So it's a very interesting uh, new world that we're, we're um, uh, finding out about now, and uh, there will be some positives come about, out of it, so uh, just in terms of new ways of working and, and communicating. Which ones do you focus on for the positives in that? The fact that um, the students didn't have to get on an aeroplane and <laughs> fly over to here, you know, so with all the carbon emissions that are generated through even, um, you know, having to travel to Geelong. To, have to meet with a, a stakeholder group over there as opposed to just doing it by Zoom. There are definite savings in finding new ways of, of meeting and sharing information. A bit more about your role as the Port Phillip Baykeeper. How has that changed? Well, apart from the fact that I haven't been able to spend as much time uh, you know, on beaches and in that sort of situation, uh, there's really no change. I guess. Um, it's an evolving role anyway and uh, finding ways of connecting with community and uh, extending our reach to members of the community that we haven't previously been able to engage with is really what it's about and uh, so I guess uh, uh, this um, uh, new world and, and working with Zoom and other sort of um, communications technologies is uh, like making short film clips is something that I'm planning to do today I'll be uh, to help support our Nature Spot project. Um, I'm planning to do two short film clips just using my mobile phone, talking on various aspects of the local environment down at uh, on the city of Port Phillip area. Yeah, just picking up those skills, you know, knowing how to uh, make new products using uh, tools that are available to us uh, is all um, useful. So uh, in that sense, it's, the, the change is that it's just as challenging as it ever used to be <laughs> but uh, also though you know there are new um, opportunities within that and I'd imagine less stress as well not having to drive to work every day and all that stuff. that's right yeah <laughs> exactly yeah so um, that, that, that's a definite positive but what I have found though that is that uh, being uh, looking at a screen for too long and doing the zoom meetings I don't know whether it's just uh, sort of Blu-rays or whatever's going on, but I do find, though, that it seems to create a, a bit of physical tension after a while. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.